I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's Wednesday, September 15th. From The Recount, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. My guest today, Steve Call is the Dean of Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine, and the author of eight books. Today's discussion focuses on two of those books. The first, Ghost Wars, won a Pulitzer Prize in 2005 and chronicles the events in Afghanistan and, to some degree, Pakistan that led to the 9-11 attacks. The second, Directorate S, picks up where the first left off, from 2001 to 2016, as President Obama began pulling troops out of Afghanistan. Both books are deeply reported and beautifully written. There's a third book coming, which will describe the final chapter of American involvement in Afghanistan. We talk about that at some length, so let's get right to it. Steve Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Glad to be here. You wrote an excellent book called Directorate S. Tell us about that book's namesake. What exactly is Directorate S? Well, Directorate S is what the United States and others sometimes called the clandestine covert unit in Pakistani intelligence that aided the Taliban, both during the 1980s when Pakistani intelligence was allied with the CIA and then against the United States in the years after September 1 when the Taliban staged their comeback, taking advantage of sanctuary in Pakistan. It's a complicated relationship that between the sort of case officers of ISI, that's the acronym for the main Pakistani intelligence agency, complicated relationship between them and the Taliban, But essentially what ISI did was to run the playbook that the CIA and ISI ran against the Soviet Union, ran that playbook against NATO, against the United States and its allies, particularly after the Taliban became, you know, sort of a force again in Afghanistan, say, around 2005, 2006. Your first big book, I guess, on Afghanistan was called Ghost Wars, and that was the expulsion of the Russians from Afghanistan and then U.S. intelligence and the U.S. government failing to take seriously, I guess, the rise of bin Laden and his ideology. 
Tell us about that book, how you came to write the first book, and then I'll ask you how you persisted and wrote the second book. You know, I'm a journalist by vocation, and I was at the Washington Post as a young person and was sent out to South Asia. You know, at that time, if you wanted to work on the foreign staff at the Washington Post, you couldn't choose where you went. They just said, if you want to apply, you'll go where we send you. And they sent me to New Delhi, and I had six or seven countries to cover. It was 1989. Afghanistan and Pakistan were two of those countries in addition to India, and they were sort of the big story then, similar to now. But the Soviet occupying army had just withdrawn from Afghanistan, and the contest for what would follow was on. The U.S. was still active in backing some of the Afghan rebel factions that it had supported. And I was the beat reporter on the ground. I spent time in Islamabad. I traveled over the mountains with the guerrillas who were being still funded by uh, the CIA. I flew into Kabul to visit with the opposing government, which was still backed by the Soviet Union. And I just spent a lot of time there. I mean, a lot of Americans now have done so as well, also not expecting that it was a country they'd get to know. And it's uh, it's quite a remarkable place. The landscape is a place apart and the culture, deep hospitality, very strong sense of national identity, despite or maybe even because of the wars the country has suffered since the Soviet invasion. And uh, I don't know, it just was a place that I became very involved in professionally. And then I also started covering Al-Qaeda and bin Laden in the 90s, again, when they were relatively minor subjects in the U.S. media. And so on 9-11, you know, I, I understood through accident of my own professional history where this had come from, I thought. And so Ghost Wars was my effort immediately after the attacks to write a book that would credibly and with you know a lot of transparent sourcing and detail let that backstory you know make it public and then it was always possible that I should write another book that would start on 9/11 and go forward but I I couldn't quite figure it out where it would end then the Obama administration announced that they were going to draw down the American military commitment substantially started setting some dates on it. So I decided to take that project up. That's the book that ultimately became Directorate S. It opens on the eve of 9-11 and it ends essentially in uh, September 2016 as the war is both much smaller and less consequential in American politics, but still continuing at a low level. The second book isn't about getting a bigger advance or writing a bestseller, really. I mean, the amount of work, the depth of the reporting, Was it just a labor of love, or what were you hoping to find out in all of that research that you did for the book? Well, it's kind of you to say. I mean, I it was a labor of love. I love my work, and when I was in college, thinking about what I wanted to do and thinking about journalism, I read a lot of big narrative nonfiction about the Vietnam era that influenced me. David Halberstam's Best and the Brightest, Neil Sheehan's Bright Shining Light, and those were all former newspaper correspondents who had covered the war on the ground then came back and with time and knowledge were able to put something together at book length that really stood up and made a difference in the way people understood at least the first or second draft of history. So that's always been my hope to be able to do that work. It was why I went out as a foreign correspondent. I thought I should get into the field a little bit before I started writing ambitious books So both books were an attempt 
I suppose, to realize my own professional goals, but around a subject that I really just, I can't explain why I got so into Pakistani intelligence and the covert actions and the structure of the Afghan civil wars when I was on the beat. There were many other subjects that you could have been interested in, but I just, I'm drawn to the complexities of political violence. And there's lots of it in South Asia, and there was lots of it in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it was also a story where the U.S. was involved through the CIA covert action in the 80s. So as a Washington Post reporter, my editors were, yeah, if you're going to do something, why don't you choose stories that illuminate the context of U.S. policy. So they they also encouraged me to spend time in Pakistan and Afghanistan, even at the expense sometimes of covering India, which was also a big story. And once so many Americans started to serve in Afghanistan after 2001, hundreds of thousands of people in our voluntary military going over there, plus civilians, aid workers, the potential to try to extend the work into that episode that that we all shared as a country, you know, the best use of time. So we come to the events of the last few months, the collapse of the Afghan government, I guess the takeover of the Taliban of Afghanistan. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was just a matter of time, but I was surprised by the speed with which it occurred. I think that's probably a pretty typical position of even people who knew the country pretty well. The war was a stalemate, had been a stalemate for a long time, really going back to 2006. Right. You could say that the stalemate was moving gradually in favor of the Taliban, but there was still no breakthrough by the Taliban. And the reason it was a stalemate was because of the monopoly on air power and intelligence and eyesight that the U.S.-led coalition, including its Afghan government allies, increasingly taking the lead in the fighting, the monopoly on air power they had, and the the fact that Taliban had no answer to air power. Every time the Taliban would try to take a city, U.S. warplanes would just bomb them back into the countryside. And the Taliban had no effective anti-aircraft systems, no prospect of getting them. And so they they controlled the nighttime. They controlled a lot of checkpoints on the roads. There were certain territories in the south and east that they controlled firmly and ruled. But all of the major cities were in the control of the government. The way the U.S. departure unfolded, it became quickly clear that all of the air power was going with the U.S. Right. I mean, the whole plan had been to leave behind a capable Afghan air force, but the sort of logic of force protection for the U.S. contractors ultimately led to decisions that they were all going out. And just as a reporter, I remain curious as to whether the Biden administration really understood that when they decided to go, that their own kind of policies about protecting contractors and that sort of thing was going to mean that every screwdriver that maintained every Afghan helicopter was was going to be gone right. <laughs> you know, right. in a very short time. And, right. and, these, and these aircraft were no longer going to fly because as soon as the Afghan security forces saw that, I think they started down the path, which was the second big thing that happened, which was, you know, they started negotiating for their own futures. This is a very common way of resolving conflict at tipping points in Afghanistan. The United States was the beneficiary of it in November and December of 2001 when the Taliban collapsed. And basically just one day by decision, 
set down their weapons and melted away. You know, I've seen it before, even in the pre-2001 Afghanistan I covered. I watched it happen once in Kabul when the Mujahideen marched into the capital and took it away from the formerly Soviet-backed government. You just had all these policemen on the street corners take off their uniforms. They knew this was coming for about a week or two, so they'd been growing their beards to blend in with the Mujahideen. (laughs) They went home, and the same thing happened this time. And I think once that started happening, it accelerated quickly. Each surrender fed the logic of the next surrender. Do you think it was the right decision? The Biden administration's decision? Yes. I mean, no, I don't. But I say that encompassing the entirety of the way the administration went about it. Yes, it was necessary for the United States to continue to transition out of Afghanistan and ultimately to minimize any combat exposure and to reduce the financial expenditure that the United States had made. But, you know, I think what was hard for most folks to see at the time that this all happened this summer was that if you step back and look at the history, the United States was already way down the road toward exiting. There was not an acute crisis that required the Biden administration's ripping the cords out. U.S. casualties were down to the rate of traffic accidents because they were no longer in combat with the Taliban. Now, you know, to be sure, if Biden had ripped up the agreement, they might have found themselves in more active combat with the Taliban. But even going back, you know, to the second part of the Obama administration and the first two years of the Trump administration, when There was no peace agreement with the Taliban, no ceasefire. Rates of casualties were still small compared to earlier in the war. They were not a source of political controversy, not to say that every one of those losses isn't terribly important and deeply felt, but the voluntary military was in the fight and achieving its goals in a sustainable way. And there was support in Congress. So I think the president, President Biden now, he had just a gut feeling that This was a war that should have been ended, you know, in the first part of the Obama administration. His advice had been overlooked at the time. He was right about some of the criticisms he made at the time of the surge that president cited. He ended up being proved right about that. And so he just made a gut call. I don't think a lot of Americans would argue with the sincerity of his decision or the conviction or even the rightness of the goal of getting out. But to do that and not plan, you know, to do that and and be in such a hurry, and then to say all the things that the president has said about, you know, why the chaos unfolded, which I just find a lot of it unconvincing, it's been a huge uh, disappointment to me. It's not my job to have opinions about these things, so I try to minimize my own kind of engagement with that level of debate. My job, I think, if I can be helpful to people, it's just to say what actually happened. I do find the, it's a, a bit of a mystery that I will now try to resolve through, through my normal research and reporting methods, which is what were they thinking about the pace of this withdrawal? I just don't quite understand how the decision to go led to the way that this unfolded and ultimately to the chaos in Kabul, because it's certainly not what the president was expecting. In early July, he was saying that images comparable to Saigon 1975, were unthinkable, just not going to happen. He said that in early July. So uh, he was getting bad advice. (laughs) 
And it's the terrible quote of, uh, well, helicopters are a normal means of transportation from the embassy to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go with that one. Yeah. Given, you know, we've been in Korea for, what, 70 years, and it seemed to me that what we were doing in Afghanistan, preventing al-Qaeda from reemerging, was relatively successful. And that if you took the U.S. out of the mix, you opened up the sort of whole Pandora's box of China getting involved, Russia coming back in, Iran, etc. I had a conversation with a man named Russ Howard, who's a special forces guy, who said that 40% of the opium consumed from Afghanistan is consumed in Iran, which is sort of a stunning statistic. But what are the other actors in the region? How are they adjusting to the U.S. departure? Well, they're feeling their way. I mean, except for Pakistan, which is really on the hook for the Taliban's victory in a lot of ways, and and maybe among the neighbors has the most to lose. So the Pakistan's trying to manage its position as a huge, of course, it has a huge, long, open, basically undefended border with Afghanistan. It has an overlapping population, Pashtun ethnic, Pashto-speaking population that doesn't really recognize the border between the two countries. And so, you know, they've, they've, had to host millions of refugees from prior phases of the Afghan war. They too have a huge heroin addiction problem related to Afghan opium production. They've got problems of extremists turning their attention from fighting the Americans to turning their attention to fighting the Pakistani army for being insufficiently Islamic. And indeed, one of the reasons the Pakistanis support the Taliban was to get them facing away from Islamabad. <laughs> Go get those guys. Don't, don't we agree those are the bad guys? Uh, now that they've done it, you know, they're going to be turning around once in a while and thinking, oh, yeah, okay, we got work to do here, and it's to the east. So the Pakistanis, I think, they had been genuinely hoping that the Taliban would make it easier for them to support the new government in Kabul by giving a more modern look to the new government by including non-Taliban factions in the new government, by taking it easy in the social transitions towards women's rights to education and the workplace. But it hasn't gone well. And now they're, you know, they've, they've got a government that looks very much like the 1990s government that only was recognized by three countries in the entire world in the 1990s. So that's Pakistan's position. They, you know, it's watch what you wish for. They wanted a Taliban victory in Afghanistan in order to thwart India, in order to extend their own security to the West. But what they don't want is another round of civil war, and they don't want more refugees, and they don't want more opium. And I'm not sure how they're going to manage preventing those things. Now, Iran, complicated relationship with the Taliban. You know, they almost went to war with the Taliban in the year 2000. Right. Iran is predominantly uh, Shia Muslim, of course, and the Taliban come from a Sunni school of Islamic jurisprudence that is generally hostile to the Shia, not as radically hostile as some like in Saudi Arabia, but but pretty hostile. So that divide, as well as an ethnic divide and a linguistic cultural divide between the leadership of the Taliban and the kind of ethos of the Iranian revolution brought them to blows. They mobilized for war. They just barely avoided it. Iran, I think, still has a lot of concern and suspicion about the Taliban as a source of instability in their own country. You mentioned drugs. That's certainly one reason. But there are other ways that the Taliban could export trouble into Iran. 
In the past, Iran dealt with this by basically supporting the opposition to the Taliban. They funded the 1990s civil war by arming and supporting the Northern Alliance or elements of the Northern Alliance that we also eventually backed after 9-11. I don't know that they want to do that right now. Everyone's kind of hedging their bets to see if there is going to be any opposition, at least in the next six months or so. And then the Chinese are Pakistan's closest ally, and Pakistan is one of China's most important allies. So they're sort of betwixt and between. They have their own anxieties about radical groups crossing into China from Afghanistan. They're you know, the Chinese government has vastly exaggerated the threat of terrorism from their own Uyghur population while justifying the mass internment of Uyghurs. But they do have a problem. And there are terrorists with China on their minds in Afghanistan training with these kind of Al-Qaeda affiliated groups. So China's not going to want to tolerate a Taliban government that endangers its own security at the same time, you know, it has always been quietly free riding the American effort to stabilize Afghanistan enough to mine its its mineral wealth and look for trading opportunities. The Chinese will certainly do that. My, my experience of China in Afghanistan, and I, I've even gone over to China and talked to their experts once or twice, they're very cautious. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Steve Call. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the podcast. Given the Taliban now in control of Afghanistan, they have no money. At least a third of the country is, if not starving, close to starvation. How do you run a government of a nation, which is really a set of tribes, I guess, with no money and no food? How, how does that work? Well, you end up with uh, the threat of famine, which is what we're being warned about today. Uh, you're right, about a third of the population is thought to be at risk of famine. And they were in trouble even before the Taliban came to power because of the coronavirus and the declining amounts of aid that was available to the country from the international system. And it is a country that would require subsidy just to, to maintain you know, the minimums that they've achieved over the last 20 years. And they have made substantial progress in you know, the basic measures of of human existence. When the Taliban fell in 2001, life expectancy in Afghanistan was about 43 years. 
Today, it's about 66. I mean, imagine that, 43 years. That is really down at the bottom of the world tables. Wow. You know, 66, 67, okay, that's still a very poor country, but it's at least within earshot of a lot of other countries that are developing. So there's a real danger that they'll go backwards real fast. It's a fragile society. The Taliban don't know how to administer aid, even if the international community decides to provide humanitarian aid, even as it maintains sanctions and freezes the Taliban's bank accounts. You know, there's going to be a big debate about whether any aid should be provided, whether the U.S. will make it difficult for other countries to provide aid. If the U.S. agrees that you know, pure humanitarian aid like food and medicine should be allowed. The mechanisms for that, how it's going to be negotiated and monitored will inevitably be complicated. I've seen this in other parts of the world. Governments are already starting to talk about this. They recognize the humanitarian crisis. All of Europe has more at stake in Afghanistan falling apart because of migration. They want to avoid a repeat of what happened after Syria collapsed and you know, a million refugees poured into Europe and changed that continent's politics overnight and just put a lot of pressure on those societies. And there were sleepers in some of those refugee flows who ended up carrying out terrorist attacks in Germany and France. And so you're going to hear the Europeans saying, we have got to prevent famine. <laughs> We've got to go in and do what's necessary. It's in everybody's interest. It's also the right thing to do. That's And I, I was talking to a senior European official involved in this just the other day. And I said, well, what are you hearing from the Biden folks? Well, there's a lot of conversation, but the Biden administration hasn't yet decided, at least this person said, how far they're willing to go to provide humanitarian aid and, and how much license they're willing to give other countries to provide it. Politically, they would probably decide that they couldn't be seen doing it. So, you know, they'd figure out a way for Germany to do it, and we would reimburse Germany for doing it, or I'm making that up. Is that how it's going to work out? Yeah, I think that that sounds right. I think, you know, if you're that country, if you're Germany or Sweden, though, when the Americans say, okay, go ahead and do it, but if you do it the wrong way, we're going to strip all of your banking access from New York. <laughs> that, that makes people very cautious. So they, they're looking for a general license. They're like saying, if you, right. if you don't have to do it yourselves, we're happy to put Made in Sweden on the bags, but you've got to share some of the risk here. There's uh, Ghost Wars. There's Directorate S. Is there a third in this trilogy? There are always trilogies, right? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't supposed to be. When... There will be. Yeah, I'm going to do a third book. I agreed you know, with my publisher I would. I wasn't planning to when Director at S came out and I was going around Washington in particular to talk about it. People used to joke with me. They said, oh, you're going to have to do a third one. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do a third one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, here I am doing it. I mean, the thing was that in Director at S, it ends, as I said, in 2016. And there, there, But the epigraph of the book was the Leonard Cohen lyrics. Everybody knows what that the dice are loaded, everybody rolls with their fingers crossed, everybody knows that the war is over, everybody knows that the good guys lost. So the book essentially had a trajectory of the U.S. not having achieved its goals, but the smaller war, the one we were talking about before, the maybe sustainable counterterrorism operation was still there and it wasn't clear when or whether it would come to an end. So that was where that left off and just the shocking events of this summer and also the role that the U.S. 
negotiations with the Taliban played in setting up the crisis. And so, yeah, I, I'll do one. Maybe I, I hope maybe it won't be quite as uh, long a book as that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, take another 12 years of your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You have a job. I mean, you're the dean of the Columbia Journalism School. Where do you find the time to do all this work? Well, they say in uh, university life that the three best things about university life are June, July, and August. So I take advantage of the summers. I've been doing it this way for a long time. I used to think there was a big conflict between my desire to write books at some depth and the joy and satisfaction I took from being part of, you know, leading public interested, talented organizations of different kinds. And gradually, I just realized that's just the way I'm wired. I like to do both things. So it means you just have to work hard. People always joke with me, how do you write these big books and have a day job? My friendly critique has always been, you must never sleep, you must be a robot. And I do try to reflect on how it is that I actually do this, because I'm not a humorless workaholic. Like I do enjoy time with my family and on the weekends and I take vacations. I think I guess I just am really disciplined. It's not so much that I'm super well organized, although I'm organized. It's more that I'm just really disciplined about my time and I stay focused. And I just I'm a big believer in, you know, the old football coaching strategy of three yards in a cloud of dust. Right. I try to stay focused on the trench in front of me and just keep moving and then try to hold the big picture in mind so that I'm not veering off in the wrong direction. But keep those two things working with each other. Keep digging ahead one step at a time, and then also keep the big picture focused so that the book comes together in a way that's coherent. And I've been doing it the same way for a long time. I wouldn't know how to do it any other way, to be honest. So. There's the great Tom Wolf line of, how did you write your novel? And he said, well, I wrote a page every day, and eventually I had 750 pages. <laughs> yes, there's a lot to that. There, there's a lot to that. Well, being disciplined with your time, we will let you go at this time. Thank you very much for joining us, and I urge our listeners to read uh, the first two in the trilogy, Ghost Wars and Director at S. I cannot tell you how much I admire both books. Thank you, John. I'm really grateful for your time, too. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was and is the great Ben McNamara. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with Adam Tews, the author of a new book, Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 